All right, thank you again, uh, music people, musicians, and singers. We're very thankful, again, as always, for the effort, the extra work that goes into that to, uh, to build us up, to encourage us, uh, to express what is in our heart to the Lord, and also to direct our hearts to the Lord. So, what a blessing. It's good to be with you again. Uh, so, I w- for those of you that weren't here, I was here two weeks ago. My voice was different. I was raspy, and, um, and uh, so you might get a different preacher today. Um, so, thankful that the Lord gives health. And it's just an illustration that we're dependent on the Lord for every little thing, even our ability to talk. And um, so, I'm thankful that he has allowed me to, uh, to recover from being sick because it doesn't always happen, as you know. People don't always recover. So let's um, go ahead and open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6, and we will read from verses 10 through 20, and then we will dive in. Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, in addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints, and pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak." Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you have given us your powerful word. You've given us your truth. You have shown us your ways. You have have rightly opened our eyes to the realities of the spiritual world, the spiritual warfare that is going on all around us. And so, Lord, I pray this morning that we would take heed to what your word says, that we would pay attention to it, in our own heart, in our own life, that we would believe what it says, that, it would, that we would not just believe it, but that we would understand and that we would, that we would remember it, Lord, that we would not forget as we go out into the world, that we would not be distracted. So, Lord, help us in this this morning, and I pray your word would make its way deep in our hearts. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So, uh, as many of you, I'm sure, are aware many people are out this morning, probably uh, on vacation, 
and I don't blame them. We're heading to Montana tomorrow morning to go to, because uh, to, my grandma uh, paid to fly us up for, for a vacation up there, and uh, very thankful for that opportunity. And it just reminds me of um, a story I heard when we, uh, from a, a Montana pastor. He said that, uh, he told the story of this old cowboy preacher out in the country, uh, you know, had their Sunday evening service, and there was this blizzard, and he was all prepped and ready to go. He'd worked all week to do this, and, and only one person showed up because of the blizzard, this old cowboy, this old rancher. And so after they waited a few minutes to see if anyone else did, it was finally just the preacher and this, this old cowboy. And so he asked the cowboy, sir, if, uh, if only one of your cows showed up to feed, would you still feed them? And he said, yes, sir. So he said, all right. So he got up and he preached the entire message, waxing eloquent for well over an hour. And at the end, the, the cowboy guy said, uh, well, sir, I, I, I would have fed him, but I wouldn't have dumped the whole load on him. Well, uh, this morning we have a, uh, we ha- I only have one shot to give you everything I want to say, right? And I don't, know, I don't know if this is wise or not, but I want to give you everything that I can because I, I just want to, sh- I want to show you everything that I can in this passage in the next 50 minutes. And so that means we're going we're gonna to fly through some stuff and uh, I'm just going to trust that you can pull up the recording, slow it down. And, and turn to some good resources like um, the systematic theology called Biblical Doctrine by John MacArthur and Richard Mayhew and uh, Wayne Grudem. Those are great resources that you can go in and study all this stuff in detail, look up all the passages. So I'm going to try to dump the whole load on you this morning, probably against the advice of my wife. Um, but we're going we're gonna to do this because it, it is important. So to sum up what we've discussed Uh, We discussed last time in the book of Ephesians chapter 6, we we have seen that it is a call for us to prepare for war. It it, It opens our eyes to this reality that there is a spiritual war going on. In verse 11, we're commanded to put on the full armor of God, the panoply of God, all of his weapons, his protective gear that's designed for combat. We're to put it on. Why? why? Why use this military, you know, language to describe the Christian life? I thought it was just supposed to be this happy, joyful, self-improvement project on your way to heaven. He says, no, basically, there are three reasons that you need to understand that, that you're in a war. Three reasons that you need to be prepared. And the first is this. We have an enemy who is actively scheming against us. We see that in verse 11. The devil is scheming against us. The second reason is because we are under attack. So we have an enemy and we are under attack. You see that in verse 12. We struggle and we wrestle against principalities and powers and world forces of darkness. You see that we have powerful enemies who we currently wrestle against, whether we know it or not. And the third reason that we are to prepare for war is that we have been commanded to stand firm. See, churches are like outposts in the midst of this war. 
It's, it's like you've, you've got a hill in the middle of Vietnam and you've been commanded to hold this hill at all costs. And the enemy is surrounding you and scheming against you, wanting you to fall, wanting, to, wanting you to fall back, to not resist, wanting you to fail in your commission. Now what is this going to take for us to stand firm? We see in verse 10, it's going to take strength, strength that you don't have in yourself. The strength of God is what it's going to take. It says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So this fight is going to take strength. It's not just a given. It's not something that you just automatically will win that you, you will not automatically resist the devil's schemes. You will not automatically stand firm. It's going to take strength. And the second thing that it will take is diligent effort. So you are to be strengthened by God, by his strength, by the strength of his might. And you're to, you're to, in order for this to happen, it's going to take diligence and it's going to take effort. It's going to take some work. Look at verse 13. It says in the middle of verse 13, having done everything to stand firm. You know, so often this idea spreads through the church almost like the annual flu virus. And it takes different forms over the years, but it, it kind of is summed up in this idea, let go and let God. This sort of passive Christianity. This sort of idea that if you, if you try and if you work hard at anything, you are somehow relying on your own flesh and the law to obey God, and that's works righteousness. There's, it's an ungodly, unbiblical idea of, of how to be sanctified. This idea that if, if you just meditate on what God has done for you, just automatically, out of the flow of that, you're, supposed, you're just supposed to do what you're supposed to do and, and change. You're supposed to kind of feel your way into holiness and, and righteousness. That if you just listen to some nice worship songs and think about how gracious God is, that somehow that will translate into you being able to, to, to do what God's called you to do. Or even this idea that it doesn't matter if you do what God has called you to do. There's, there's a false sense in Christianity that, that the whole point of Christianity is to show you that you don't deserve his righteousness, right? That's not the whole point. Now, you need to understand that, that you are not righteous in yourself, that you can't do it in your own strength. However, when God strengthens you, it produces effort in you. You actually, you, when, when the Holy Spirit is at work in you, it produces work by you. And it feels like work. But you can't, you, you cannot divorce the two things. You, can't, you cannot have this, this unbiblical response to your failures. I think, I think what happens is that people feel guilty and burdened about their sin. And they feel anxious about it and they feel down about it. And rather than allowing Christ to justify their sin, recognize that, that he must increase and you must decrease, recognize that, that this, 
life is a war and that it's to be expected that it's going to be difficult. Instead of that, we downplay sin, turn it into something that doesn't matter so that we can relieve ourselves of, of pressure. Scripture does not do that. I mean, listen to, look at this passage. After reading this text, do you get the idea that the Christian life is one of relaxation and just an ease, and God just kind of carries you through? No. This, um, the, probably the most well-known in recent times that promoted this false idea of sanctification was a guy named Tullian Chavidgian. And we've seen the fruit of his unbiblical way of life caught in multiple affairs and yet still clinging to his hyper-grace idea of the Christian life. This is not right, and it is harmful and destructive. So, this fight is going to take the strength of God and diligent effort to do everything to stand firm. Now, when he says everything, he doesn't mean all of your human efforts, all of your human ideas. He means do everything that God has called you and given you to do. He means put on every piece of armor that he's about to list out. To do all, to stand firm, is to sum it up, to walk in the truth, to do what is right, to live in accordance with the gospel of peace, to take up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, the word of God, and prayer, having done all of these things to stand firm. Do what God has prescribed. It's amazing. I, I see this a lot in, um, in counseling young men, and I've seen it in my own life, is they, uh, they struggle, they, they confess their sin, and then they maybe read the first two chapters of a book that you ask them to read, and then they don't do any of it, and then they come back two months later depressed about why they're not growing. They think that just by reading and confessing that that ought to be enough, but you actually have to do what God has said. You actually have to walk in the power that he has prescribed. And this is, this is uh, maybe the way I would think about it is, you know, if you're going to hit the beach at Normandy Beach on, on D-Day, World War II, you're going to invade Europe. If you want to win, you need to land on the beach that the whole U.S. government and, and all the allied forces are aiming their weapons at. You actually have to get in the tank that they prescribed and put on the armor, fly in their planes and land in the general area that you're supposed to land. If you decide that that's too hard and you're going to land 500 miles down the coast, you're going to get annihilated. You're going to use your own reasoning, your own power, 
and that, that's, that's what it's like to try to fight Satan with your own ideas rather than the very simple, straightforward commands of God. But the great thing about this whole, this whole thing is that, is that what God has prescribed is, is actually very simple and straightforward. It's not magical. It's nothing new. You don't need a special uh, spell or incantation to do this. You don't need some kind of higher power. You don't need a second blessing of the Holy Spirit. Everything, according to 2 Peter, according that is necessary for life and godliness has been provided to you. You already have it. You just need to walk in it. You just need to do what God has said. And if you have the Holy Spirit as a believer, you also have the power to do it. You won't do it perfectly, but you are able to. I mean, that's what he says right here. Verse 10, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his might. Verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. Is God doing a little bait and switch here? Try really hard. Oh, you fell down. Well, you know, you couldn't do it anyway. No, that's... He says you're able to stand firm if you put on the armor of God. Put it all, resist in the evil day, having done everything to stand firm. And then we're not only, we're not only told that we're able to stand firm, we are commanded to stand firm. And he gives us what we need. Now, why should we care about this? What is at stake here? What if we fail? We may have talked about this last time, but is it just kind of like in school, you know, the teacher hands out a test and you miss some questions on the test? Oh, man, I feel like an idiot. Is that the worst that's at stake here? That you feel like an idiot? That you get embarrassed? That you don't feel good about yourself? Is that what's at stake here? Oh, man, I'm such a bad soldier. Is that, I mean, is that really... Is that really the worst that thing that can happen? No. James 1 says this, that each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The end result of a life given over to sin is death. And not in the sense that, not only in the sense that all people die as a result of sin, that because sin entered the world, now everyone died, but it actually leads you to death. An unhealthy focus on self and believing the devil's lies can lead to suicide and murder I mean, and, and all kinds of destruction. It's really amazing. You see some of these cults like um, Jim Jones, uh, Jonestown, the guy that he took a bunch of people down to South America. Basically, he was claiming he was the Messiah. And then he convinced them all to drink cyanide. Sin and uh, satanic deception leads to death. Satan is a liar and a murderer, and that is his end goal that you would die in your sin 
So going down the path of, of submitting yourself to sin can lead you that far. Romans 6, 21, the wages of sin is death. The fruit of it is stuff that you are ashamed of. In Romans 6, 21, it says. Satan is looking for someone to devour in 1 Peter 5. 1 Timothy talks about how many made a shipwreck of their faith, wandered away from the faith, and swerved from the faith. Again, to reiterate what we said last time, you you cannot lose your faith if it's a genuine faith. But there are many who give signs of faith and even believe that they believe, if that makes sense. They are self-deceived. But in time of testing, they fall away. That's why 1 Peter says that when your faith is tested in in, in chapter 1, When your faith is tested by the various trials and your faith is proven genuine through those trials, you rejoice with joy inexpressible because when you endure the trial, it is proof of your salvation. It is assurance of your salvation. You want assurance of your salvation? Endure the trials. That's where assurance comes from. And the Spirit of God in your own soul Assuring you that you are adopted by him. Look at, listen to First Peter four, or First Timothy four one. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. They will depart from the faith. Chapter five, verse eleven through fifteen. In talking about some practical matters of um, who qualifies as a widow to be supported by the church, he says, refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. So so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. So these young women were straying after Satan because they idolized marriage and desired that, lusted for marriage and whatever that brought them. They were willing to compromise the faith, in fact, even leave the faith in order to have what they really wanted. Hebrews 3.13 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be found in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The worst case scenario is that your faith would fail, that you would dishonor Christ, having boldly proclaimed his name, only to fall away and deny him. It leads to broken lives, broken families, broken relationships, and broken churches, lots and lots of pain. 
It leads you to fail in your encouragement of your brothers and sisters, and instead you become a drag and a discouragement on them when you give in to the devil's schemes. It makes you ineffective and unfruitful, and it disqualifies you from ministry. It dishonors Christ before the world and thus hinders the testimony of the gospel. That is why we must pray. That is why we must resist. That is why we must stand firm. It's not about you and your feelings. It's not about, it's not about you feeling good about yourself as a Christian. It's not about you passing a little exam. This is about the glory and honor of Christ, the good of the people around you, and the failure to do that will result in pain and destruction and, and the worst case is death and separation from Christ. So, how do we prepare? This is a little bit of review from last time. You have to know your enemy, his characteristics, his goals, and his allies, and his schemes. As we discussed last time, our, our enemy is Satan and his myriad of demons. He is an ancient, evil, powerful angel who envied the Lord's throne and proudly sought God's glory for himself. He rebelled against the Lord, taking one-third of the angels to be his demons. These are the rulers and the powers and the world forces that are mentioned in Ephesians 6. And the whole world lies under his sway. His goal... His agenda, ultimately, is to bring shame and disgrace upon the name of the Lord and to oppose His will. Since He cannot have the worship that is due to God, He he wants to prevent God from being worshipped. He wants men to die in their sin and permanently exist in a state of rebellion and hatred for God in hell. He wants there to be enmity between God and man and between you and other people. He, that is his desire, to create enmity, to plant seeds of enmity. He wants to hinder the spread of the gospel so that people will not be reconciled to God through faith. He wants to prevent you from believing and he wants your faith to fail and he wants you to be unfaithful in the proclamation of that salvation by faith alone in Christ. And he has two allies in this fight, the flesh and the world. The flesh is your sinful desires in your heart and mind that you were born with. These are the desires that are opposed to the will of God, which can be summed up in this idea, autonomous selfishness and pride. It's a desire to rule yourself, to glorify yourself, to serve yourself. That is the flesh. And before you were saved, you were dead in your transgressions and sins and enslaved to these deceitful lusts. These are manifested. These lusts are manifested in the futility of mind, hardness of heart, and unwillingness to submit to God's truth and His way. Sensuality, Greedy impurity, lying, stealing, unwholesome words, bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, and malice, all of those things are of the flesh. Those come from your selfish, 
proud, autonomous desires. And they come out destructively against other people and against the Lord. So you have an enemy outside of you, and that is the Lord, and you have an enemy inside of you, that is your flesh. And as we discussed last time, these, these lusts wage war against your soul. These desires that you cherish wage war against your soul. And it is those desires that Satan seeks to exploit. He knows that as a believer, you are no longer enslaved to these desires. You're not not captive to them anymore. But even though you're no no longer enslaved, he knows that you are still tempted. And he wants to bring temptation to bear on your flesh. And he uses the world to bring this temptation to bear. And that is his second ally, the world. So the flesh and the world, these are his allies. As mentioned in Ephesians 2.2, Satan is at work in the sons of disobedience, the people known as the world. The combined system of ungodly thoughts and philosophies raised up against the knowledge of God, as we read from 2 Corinthians 10, chapter 10, right? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, that we fight against these, these thoughts, these systems of thought that are raised up against the knowledge of God, these systems of thoughts that, that justify somebody's sin so that people, well, this is how they deal with the guilt and shame that is associated with this. This is how they deal with the idea that they are accountable to a creator. They create elaborate brilliant systems of thought so that they can feel right in their rebellion against God. And our job is to proclaim the gospel as an assault on those fortresses, those mental fortresses, and to bring them into captivity, into obedience to Christ. So that is what the world does Satan is called the prince and the ruler, the God of this world. Second Corinthians 4 4, he is called the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Second Timothy says that unbelievers have been captured by the devil to do his will. John 8:44 told the Pharisees that they Jesus told the Pharisees that they will that they were doing the will of their father the devil. 1 John 3:10 says this, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Who, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So the one who does not practice righteousness is a child of the devil. The whole world lies under his sway, 1 John 5.19 says this. The world lies under the power of the evil one. So this world is under his domain. Okay, and we need to make a, a point here, which we will later, but just in case we run out of time. God rules over all. Satan can do nothing outside of God's will 
anything that God allows him to do. If God doesn't allow it, Satan couldn't do it. Okay, so he is not more powerful than God. He is not equal to God. We don't have these competing forces that are on equal terms, and we're going to, we'll just have to wait and see what happens to see which one wins. No, God has won. He is more powerful. But Satan has been given a time, a short time, to deceive the nations. And this world that is under his sway, John 7, 7, says this, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of this world, because of this, the world hates you. Satan, is under, Satan rules the world. The world is under his domain, under his sway. And by his influence, the world hates you. And it will never be different until Christ comes again. We, the world doesn't hate us because of the hypocrisy of the church. The world doesn't hate you because you're bigots. The world hates you because you belong to God and because Satan hates you and because they are under his domain. And the world's wisdom cannot lead to God. First, First Corinthians one twenty one says this. The wisdom of, through the wisdom of God, the world... Let me try again. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believed. You cannot come to God through the world's wisdom. People in far off countries cannot reason their way to God. Philosophies will never lead to God. Arguments will never lead to God. The world's wisdom will never lead to God. It is only through the foolish message of the gospel that people are saved. And the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God. James 4.4 4 says this, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? By friendship meaning you're you, you're yoked up with them. You, you're, you have the same desires and goals. You, you want them to be on your side. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So what does the world value then? What makes up the world's system. Listen to 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He says, Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in, is not in him. Okay, do you see that? If you love the world, and what he's about to say in the following verses, if you love the world in this way, you do not know God. God is not in you. You're not a believer. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. 
The lust of the flesh, those are those sensual desires. The lust of the eyes, that is greed. Greed for possessions. Greed for anything. And the last one is the boastful pride of life. These things are not of God. And it is these things that the, sa- that, the, that the world values. It is these things that the world worships. Every song on the radio promotes this stuff. Sensual desires, greed and money, and pride. And then there's this drumbeat over and over and over. You watch American Idol, and it... it Every single person that comes on there wants these things. (laughs) Every unbeliever, I should say. And this is what they love. And those things are passing away. So, Satan's two allies are the flesh and the world, your flesh, your own desires, and the world system that seeks to bring temptation to bear on those desires, create system of, systems of thought to make you believe that those are okay so that you will give in to them and feel justified in doing so. And by in buying their lies and in giving in to their pressure, you will fold and fail to resist the schemes of the devil. Now, there's a few uh, strategies that Satan uses in an effort to get you to to fall and to fail in what God has called you to do. He uses schemes. These are methods, strategies. It's a military term. And these strategies are ongoing and various. Okay, so it's constant. It's all the time. He doesn't stop. He doesn't give up, and he's very creative in how to bring these temptations to bear. But I want to give you four main strategies that he uses. Okay, and we're going to fly through these because I want to get to some other things. But deception is the first one. He wants you to believe lies, the doctrines of demons, false ideas about God. He wants you to believe false ideas about Christ, Either God and Jesus, they're not good or they're not real or they're, they're separate people like the Mormons believe or, the, or, or that Jesus never really came in the flesh or that Jesus didn't really die or that he wasn't really raised from the dead or that he's not coming back. He wants you to believe these things. He wants you to believe false ideas about your sin. First of all, he wants you to, to feel like sin's not a big deal. He wants, you to, he wants you to believe and be deceived into believing that, that these things, that you can walk headlong in sin with no repentance and have no consequence for it. He wants you to believe that your sin is too big for God to forgive. He wants you to feel that there's, that there's no hope, that there's no forgiveness that God can never forgive someone like you. He wants you to believe lies like that. He wants you to doubt his word. I want to give you just a quick 
illustration other than, uh, I mean, you know, you can look at Genesis 3 and the way that he tempted Eve to doubt God's word, doubt God's goodness. You can look at uh, Matthew chapter 4 and the way that, that Satan tempted Jesus many times. You can see those patterns. But I, just in the book of Ephesians, I want you to see one of the lies that he says here. Ephesians uh, chapter 5. Look at uh, verse 3. It says, But immorality and any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting. Okay, these things are not fitting with our call to the gospel. But rather the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let me read that again because I'm not sure we always believe this. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man, these are people who are dominated and controlled by these desires, who is an idolater, None of them have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He wants to deceive you into believing lies about sin, about its seriousness, and about its remedy. The second strategy that he employs is division. He wants you to believe lies, and he wants you to divide with one another. He wants to sow seeds of discord where you slander one another, where you hold bitterness and grudges against one another, where you refuse to forgive. And you see that the whole, you see this over and over in the New Testament. Paul is very concerned about the divisions that show up. You see it in, uh, in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians, the whole book. The, the, the Corinthians are dividing over so many different things, and it really boils down to arrogance and selfishness in their hearts, a lack of love for one another. And they would divide over who, were their, who their favorite teacher was. Okay, Paul and Apollos and Cephas, these people were, were dividing up underneath and looking down on people who, whose favorite teacher was Paul. You know, that kind of a thing. These were all gospel-teaching preachers, good guys, and they were using it as a means to divide in so many other ways. You see it in, in the book of Philippians. Paul is calling them to get along, to, to get along for the sake of the gospel. And then here in the book of Ephesians, there are divisions between Jews and Gentiles, between Jews and Gentiles, two people groups, there could be nothing more different than a Jew and a Gentile in terms of lifestyle, in terms of background and all that kind of stuff. Those Jews and Gentiles are so distinct and they looked down on each other. They hated each other, naturally. And the book of Ephesians largely is written to show them 
that they have no grounds for boasting in themselves, but that both have equal access and equal footing before the Lord, and that by his death have been united. Okay? What does that mean for us? It means that every single one of you, if you are in Christ, are one, one body, equal before the Lord, one spirit, one baptism, one God and Father over all. This means that, that none of us has a right to boast against another. None of us has a right to hold a grudge against one another. Think about this. How holy and perfect is God? How holy and perfect is Jesus? And yet he laid down his life to forgive you and to forgive that other person whom you are tempted not to forgive. He has forgiven the person who you have not. The one against whom every sin is, he's the target of, right? Every sin is against him personally. And yet he has forgiven Satan's desire is to divide that. And I want to show you this. Look at, look at chapter 4 of, of Ephesians. Look at chapter 4. And let's go to verse... Um, we're, we're no longer to walk as the Gentiles walk. We're to put, put off the old man and put on the new. And then verse 25... Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're to be truthful. Verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. You see that when you allow anger to fester, bitterness, and in fact, the, the way that the context rolls out here, this phrase, do not give the devil an opportunity, actually applies to the whole context. So when you lie, you give the devil an opportunity. When you hold grudges and are angry and let it go on, you're giving the devil an opportunity, a place, a foothold. When you allow suspicions and evil uh, and, and, and slanderous things to go on, you give the devil a foothold. When you steal, rather than work to give, you give him a foothold. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such as is good for edification, building up according to the needs of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Satan does not want you to build up the body. He wants you to tear them down. He doesn't want you to give grace to one another. He wants you to judge one another and to hold that judgment over each other's head. These are his strategies. Deception, division, and distraction. He wants you to, he wants you to be distracted by things that are not purely sinful. He wants you to give your attention to things that don't actually matter to God. I mean... What, what has God called you to? I mean, think about it. Think of what God has specifically called you to in the roles in your life. Mothers and fathers. 
What has God given you? Are you distracted from his call? I know I often am. I'm distracted by God's work from God's actual call on my life sometimes. I'm distracted by the cares and the, the, the anxieties of life from actually investing in the little people that God has given me. Satan wants you to be distracted from that purpose. And these are the things he's called you to. He wants you to be distracted from the gospel. Think about this. When you go to the grocery store, usually you want to get in there and get out, right? At least as most guys do. You want to get in and get out as quick as you can. Because you're focused on you want to go, you want to get home so you can get, watch the game or you just want to get out of there so you can get to something else that you want to do or you're distracted by work and anxiety and whatever it is. Meanwhile, you're bumping into, you're bumping into unbelievers all the way that you go. You're missing opportunities for the gospel because you're distracted from what God has actually called you to do. You're, you're missing opportunities to serve one another, to serve other people. He is distracting you. So deception, division, distraction. And just one verse because we're going we're gonna to run out of time here. I was overly ambitious. Distraction. Ephesians 5, 18. Look at this. Look at what he says here. He says, do not get drunk with wine. Okay? Is that just a rule to keep? Why? Why is that a big deal? Look at what he says. For that is dissipation. It's wastefulness. It's debauchery. It's, it is a waste of your mind, of your resources, and of your time. That's what it is to get drunk. That's why it's a problem. But be filled with the Spirit. Okay? Now, he had just said in verse, 16, verse 15 and 16, look at this. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. We're to make the most of the time, not wasting it on things like getting drunk and other life-dominating, soul-sucking activities. Beware of his schemes to distract you and to make you feel like it doesn't matter what you do or how you spend your time. Deception, division, distraction, and I had to go with one more deed, destruction. What I mean is persecution and pressure. He, he wants to bring pressure to bear on you. And, and when, when the heat is brought on you, it really reveals your character and what you love. And are you going to go ahead and go follow that thing that you love and lash out against the pressure or cave to the pressure in order to have what you want? Or are you going to stand firm? And I'll give like one tangible example here in Georgia. There was a, a law that was passed um, by uh, the legislature that was going to protect pastors from having to perform a same-sex wedding ceremony. And... And all of these, it didn't even take the government to bring the pressure. All of these corporations threatened to pull their business out of the state 
if the governor, governor signed this into law. They brought economic pressure to bear. And what do you think he did? He didn't sign the law. Out of a, out of a concern for the economics. This is, where our, this is where the pressure will come first, I think. Other than just ostracism and people looking down on you and, and the news making it feel like everyone feels the same way. These corporations and this world that is controlled by, by the devil who hates us, who hates our God, is bringing pressure to bear. And if you love money, you will fold. If you love ease and comfort, you will fold. If Christ is simply a means to a more comfortable life for you, you will fold when the pressure, when the pressure comes. All right. So, you have to know your enemy and then you have to be strong. And I'm just going to give you the outline here. How can we be strong? First, you have to know your strength. You have to know what power is available to you. You're to be strong in the Lord, Ephesians 6.10 says, and in the strength of his might. Here's another kind of interesting thing in Christianity these days is this this false idea of, of, uh, of brokenness being some kind of a virtue where Christians just kind of, you know, just kind of weak and humble and, and it's like we're supposed to be humble, right? But here it says be strong in the strength of the Lord. How strong is that? How strong is the strength of the Lord? It is mighty. It's, this is exactly like what God said to Joshua when he says, Be strong and courageous, for I am with you wherever you go, and I have given this land into your hand. Romans 8 says, We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Do we act like that? Do we recognize that we are the superior force? Do you realize that? You are not the underdog. In this world, though we are outnumbered, in terms of the people who love God, God is for us. And if he is for us, who can stand against us? Romans 8, go read the end of Romans 8. It says nothing can stand against us. No tribulation, no trial, and it says no principality or power, no demon and no devil can stand against us for we overwhelmingly conquer so you don't have to walk out there and hide behind the bushes in this spiritual battle. You don't have to be, you don't have to sneak around. You don't have to be all down and fearful. Because what God has called you to is very simple and he is very strong and we're to be strong. We're to be strengthened in the strength of his might. He is strong, we know this. He created the world by the word. He orders all things after the purpose of his will. He controls it all. 
By him, nations rise and fall. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. He is so strong, and we need his strength. Earlier in Ephesians, it said, Paul prayed that they would have strength to comprehend the love of Christ. But it's really interesting. This is a really interesting phrase because where it says, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might or in his mighty strength, this phrase is used only one other time in the New Testament and it is earlier in the book of Ephesians and it is in chapter one. And this is what he says. Listen to verse 15. For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. For what purpose? So that you will know what is the hope of his calling What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. That's the same phrase, the strength of his might. Ephesians 1 verse 19. When was, okay, when was this brought about for us? Okay, When his strength, the strength of his might was working for us, it produced hope for us and the riches of the glorious inheritance that he's promised to us, right? When did he give us this? Verse 20, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So when Christ was raised from the dead, that was God's mighty power working on your behalf to accomplish your salvation. You know, the most difficult thing for God to do was to forgive your sin. You know, of all the stuff that God has done by the working of his power, the most glorious display of his power and the most difficult thing for God to do was to forgive your sin because it took his son living on this earth and enduring Life among sinners in a fallen world, living under the Adam's curse for 30 plus years, and to go to die. And it was so difficult that it was the only thing that he begged God to get him out of in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, if there is any other way, please let this pass from me. He, he three times with drops of blood coming off his forehead because he was so stressed. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It was necessary that he die so that you could be forgiven. There was no other way. And then when he was raised in power, that was the working of God's great might on your behalf so that you would be forgiven And so that you could be raised again. Because look at what it says. Verse 21, he was raised far above all authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. He was raised far above all of those demonic forces. 
And he put all things, verse 22, in subjection under his feet. And he gave him his head over all things to the church. He has been given to us. And in, verse, in chapter 2, it says that he, that we were raised with him. Chapter 2, um, let's see if the, the verse here. 2 6? Yes. Chapter 2, verse 6. Look at this. So he was raised by the working of God's great might. And when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, verse 5, he made us alive together with him. Verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. So Christ has been raised far above all of our enemies. And we have been raised with him far above all of these enemies. And that power is available to us by grace, through faith alone. So he has won the victory. We are more than conquerors in him. Satan cannot overcome a believer who resists him. You know that you and I are not called to conquer Satan. We're just called to resist him because God has conquered him. And if you resist him, he will flee. No temptation is too strong for a believer. If you believe it's too strong, that's a lie. 1 Corinthians 10, there's no temptation that has overtaken you, verse 13. Except which is common to man, and God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, flee from idolatry. They will not, Satan cannot conquer a believer who has put on the armor, who is standing firm. And ultimately, Romans 16, 20, God will crush Satan under your feet. So, we're to be strong by knowing your strength, putting on the armor, and I'll just finish up here. Put on the armor belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield of faith, the, go- the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and just a quick note about that. The gospel is a, is a message of reconciliation, that when you believe the gospel, you are reconciled to God, and you are at peace with him. That gives you steadiness, that it makes you ready to absorb any blow because the people that are hurling these insults at you are not your enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. They are the mission. And we have the gospel, which is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. And when you believe that, you have a message of reconciliation for the LGBT community, for atheists, for everyone that hates you. You have a message of reconciliation, the gospel of peace, and that makes you ready the shield of faith, simply believing God. The helmet of the hope of salvation is what First Thessalonians calls it. So when your hope is set in heaven, it allows you to overcome. You don't have to live for this world because you have a hope set in eternity. The sword of the Spirit. Okay, so lastly, stay alert. So, be, so you have to know your strength. You have to put on the armor, Okay. If you're going to stand firm, you do all. You put on every piece of armor, and it's very straightforward. And then you must stay alert in prayer. 
6.18, with all prayer and petition. You have, to be, you have to pay careful attention to yourself and be alert on your own behalf and for all the saints. When you're living for yourself, you're not paying attention to those things. And pray that we would all have boldness as we proclaim the mystery of the gospel. All right, thank you for hanging in there. Let's pray.